This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. It is finally Friday. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside, uh, well, nobody this evening. I'm all on my own some, but I've got some great guests lined up for us to uh, to talk to, uh, to work our way through what is turning out to be quite an interesting day. It's certainly been an amazingly interesting week, uh, and there's so much to digest and sift our way through uh, and think about how it's going to set us up for next week. Let's deal with the price action this evening. And then we'll kind of go from there. So what we're seeing right now is a negative story over in the States. Um, we've got the S&P down by two-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq's actually positive by eight-tenths of 1%. The FTSE 100, though, closed down below... Actually, maybe it didn't close below 7,000. I'm looking at a, uh, a number here that says 7,016. Uh, we dipped briefly below 7,000 coming through the close. Uh, looks like we may have uh, just rallied a little bit on the numbers that I'm seeing right now. Uh, but we're circa 7,000 on the FTSE 100, down by around four-tenths of 1%. Um, what we've seen so far is a significant sell-off uh, in the energy sector. The reason for that is that oil prices are absolutely tumbling this evening. Brent crude is is down by 4%. Uh, over the uh, the last five days, it's down by 6%. This is, we see, the Fed really hammering on the door uh, of the inflation narrative over in the United States, basically signaling it's going to do what, whatever it takes, really, uh, to get us back down to 2%. Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, has indicated that today. And the market uh, is taking him, as, him at his word, i.e. we are going to hit demand and we're going to hit it hard. That's why oil prices are coming under such significant pressure. But it's been a really turbulent week for equity markets more broadly. Uh, What you've seen this week is a significant rolling off uh, of uh, equity valuations really around the world. Uh, So the Nasdaq, for instance, down by 5% this week. The S&P is down by 6%. The FTSE 100 down by 4%. Uh, The DAX over in Germany down by 4.6%. The CAC 40 in Paris down by 5%. So it's been a really ugly week for equities. And as I say, we'll dig through the details as we work our way through the show, the reasons for it, and where ultimately this price action could take us. That's what's happening in the markets. Charlie Pellet is here with the headlines. I thank you very much. You're not alone, Guy Johnson. We've got you covered. Bank of England Chief Economist Hugh Pill signaled that policymakers are likely to meet any further evidence that high inflation is driving up wages or shop prices with an unprecedented half-point increase in interest rates. Pill's comments to Bloomberg TV follow a fifth back-to-back quarter-point rate rise taking borrowing costs to 1.25%. He marked a shift towards a more aggressive policy on taming inflation at the BOE and Treasury. Tesco says shoppers are buying fewer items and trading down to cheaper own brand versions of staples in a, quote, incredibly challenging market that's been hit by the worst inflation in 40 years. Britain's biggest supermarket chain reported a greater than expected 1.5% decline in comparable UK sales in the first quarter. London Gatwick Airport says it's going to scrap hundreds of flights over the peak summer travel period. Hours after Amsterdam's Schiphol hub took a 
similar step as the aviation industry's staffing crisis deepened. And it remains hot, hot, hot. A breezy summer night on the French Mediterranean coast turned into climate hell when a strong gust of hot wind elevated temperatures to 37 degrees from 22 degrees within three hours. And the UK Met Office says some parts of the southern half of the UK could reach 34 degrees higher than the maximum temperature reached in all of last year. Guy Johnson, I don't know about you, but I'm off to Margate. <laughs> I'm sure you'd like to be. Oh, but, I, but I, you... I love Margate. I spent so much time there growing up as a kid. How about you? Uh, not in Margate, but similar seaside towns, certainly. And it would be lovely to be in one this weekend with the price, with the uh, with the temperature soaring. Um, it would be certainly a weekend to to hit the seaside. It's you guys have got a long weekend though. Coming uh, we up. we do have a, a long weekend. First uh, time we are marking the holiday of Juneteenth here in yep. the United States, and uh, three day weekend for a lot of people. So, uh, but uh, you don't have that holiday this coming week. No, I, I'm funny enough actually off to Doha to go to the IATA conference to talk about what is happening in the travel industry. Oh, um, what a mess right now. You just heard that story about Gatwick here well, in the United yeah. States. And, I, you know, climate obviously getting worse, but it just seems it is like the slightest... The slightest incident just seems to cause unbelievable ripple effects. Well, so the, the question really that everybody's asking is, how did the industry... How did the industry not get ready for such a huge pickup in demand. Clearly, it hunkered down during the, the downturn, during the pandemic, and then didn't get ready quickly enough for the upturn. But but is this... I, jet fuel prices are super high. Ticket prices are super high. Like, you're a guy that likes to fly. Are, you gonna, are, are people, as you go into a long weekend, for instance, going to be flying less? Do you think people are going to be driving less? Oil prices, despite today's drop, super high. Jet fuel prices, super high. Airfares, just off the Richter scale. Exactly. And you know what, though? I think a lot of people feel the same way I do, Guy, and that is so-called revenge travel. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not immune to, uh, to higher prices, but uh, uh, listen, for the past couple of years, we haven't been going anywhere, and yeah. I'm ready to, you know, I'm, I, I want to go places like the, again. But this feels like the revenge of travel on the rest of us. I... You, you want to go somewhere, but airports are going to be clogged. If you want to get your bags, it's going to take two hours to get them. If you want to get on a plane, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. I, we all thought that we want to come out of the pandemic. And as you say, revenge travel. We want to get on a plane. We want to go and see friends and family. We want to go to nice places. We want to have a good time. But getting there is turning out to be to be a little trickier than anticipated. Exactly. I'm being polite here. Exactly. And uh, it's funny because also as referencing the uh, the heat story in the United Kingdom, I'm just thinking yeah. about going to Doha, wondering what you're in for. But listen, I saw you talking to Richard Branson this morning. I know it was a completely different topic, did, but did Branson have any remarks tenden- tangentially related to the airline industry and travel? No, he said that he said that, that Virgin's doing well, but... Uh, but again, like so many other airlines, it's really struggling with staff. I, so Shai, who runs Virgin Atlantic, who I know very well, I did a did a fantastic job keeping that that whole thing together to to allow it to to to, to survive the downturn. I, if you're in the long term long haul business, if you're only in the long haul business, it's been a really difficult recovery. Um, but the problem has been that that in order to survive the to the, to, to survive the downturn, you basically had to slash cost slash staff. Then, as you say, you end up in a situation where you've had to come back really, really quickly, and all of the airlines are really struggling with it. And and Virgin is is not immune to that. You're making hay while the sun shines, but the but the sustainability story of this recovery, I think, is going to be really interesting. Once that revenge travel is done, 
and the cost of living crisis is real, are people really going to be booking holidays again? Like if you said to people, when we came out of the pandemic, Charlie, everybody was like, yep, yeah, we're good. We're good to go. That was before the cost of living crisis, crisis has hit, before inflation had hit. Now we're all dealing with that. Would we have really booked the same level of travel if we knew just how much balance sheets are going to be squeezed? Yeah, I, I, that's an excellent point, and I really, really, really wonder about that. I can only speak for myself, my family. I just, you know, I'm looking at all. I, I live vicariously through other people's travel plans. Although I was talking to my team leader this morning, uh, he got a weather-related delay coming back into New York. Five-hour delays oh, here on the United, yeah. you know, and and why? It's it, it, you know, back in the old days, they could bring in another plane. They could fly a plane at fifty percent, forty percent of it yep. just meant getting the plane to its destination and and that's no longer the case they're just not doing that anymore absolutely and and they're trying to bring planes back really quickly i've seen some really sort of slightly worn planes <laughs> exactly. uh, parked at various airports over the last few days as they try and bring them back out of the desert charlie you asked about what the weather's going to be like in doha saturday 41 sunday wow. 42 oh, wow. 43 on monday 45 oh on tuesday <laughs> Yeah, that qualifies as hot. And the most important thing for me to, to about your journey, very briefly, I've only, I know we've only got a few seconds left. Who are you flying on? What kind of plane? I'm guessing it'll be a 777. Uh, no, I think it, it's a BA. I think I, I'm going BA, and I think I'm going on a 380. Fair, uh, 380? Which, That's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Know, I'm quite looking forward to it. I haven't been on wow. a 380 for ages. Yeah. I think I'm going to be upstairs. Quite Cheers. exciting. Enjoy, mate. Uh, yep. We'll look forward to that. Charlie, have a great weekend. Enjoy the long weekend. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. So the European Commission earlier today recommending that Ukraine be granted candidate status. It's a symbolic step, some would argue, and it will be a very long path for Ukraine to become a member of the European Union. Um, It's still, though, a a significant and really quite important moment, uh, I think, for the country. Um, The question is, what kind of a country will we be seeing once this conflict ultimately comes to a conclusion? Bloomberg's Ros Matheson joining us now on the line to discuss. Ros, is this a a morale-boosting exercise or is this something that is going to actually realistically ever come to fruition? Well, it's something that takes a very long time to come to fruition, but certainly it's a symbolic um, move, if nothing else, and quite, you know, a show of of unity, really, um, at this sort of early stage. Um, but obviously, sort of many, many, you know, steps along the way. Um, but, you know, what you're really seeing at the moment is Europe trying to throw its support and its arms around Ukraine still um, more than, you know, 100 days into this conflict and to say to them, like, we'll give you this foot on the, in, in the doorway, yep. you've got a long way to get through. Um, you know, Ukraine is, a, is, a, is a, a country with a troubled history before the war, um, a country which had a high level of corruption, uh, questions over rule of law, the strengths of its institutions. So it's got a very long way to go. In terms of what this also signals from the European Union, it signals that the European Union wants the Ukrainian economy ultimately to be self-sustaining. And that is going to require huge amounts of money, I'm assuming. 
Well, that's right. I mean, it's not just billions. It's, it's tens and hundreds of billions and more. And what you're seeing right now is Europe funnel money to Europe, to Ukraine, sorry, just to keep the government functioning. So that's money that Europe knows is going there and is never going to come back. Um, technically, it's, it's loans, but that money, of course, they're presuming um, won't be something that can be repaid. But in the longer term, when you're talking about reconstruction, that's where strings start to get attached and you might see European nations start to balk at just spending, you know, again, like hundreds of billions of dollars unless there's sort of a program with that that shows the steps that Ukraine's going to take in terms of economic reform, in, in terms of buffering its institutions um, and accountability in terms of where that money goes. So right now the, it's just the need to keep the, the government functioning and moving, but that will transition at some point into those trickier questions of, of how much Europe is prepared to spend in the long run um, unless Ukraine signs up to a pretty detailed program in return. Is it a coincidence that Boris Johnson was in Kyiv today following the fact that, that Emmanuel Macron was there yesterday with Olaf Scholz and Mario Draghi? Well, he would say, and his government is saying, that it's a coincidence that he's there today. Of course, he was due to be in the north of England meeting his lawmakers today um, as he faces a lot of pressure at home ahead of some key by-elections um, in the northern part of England um, before too long. And so he was due to, to do that, um, but instead he's pitched up in Ukraine. Of course, his government says um, there's no link between those two, um, but certainly the British government's been quite quick to sort of tout Boris Johnson's rapport with the Ukrainian president. Um, they get on very well. And to tout the British government's um, support of Ukraine, be it economic or military, and that tends to resonate um, very much at home. So certainly yeah. in the middle of a domestic crisis, the UK Prime Minister has opted to make um, a photo op again in Ukraine. Yeah, it's a, uh, a well-trodden path, uh, increasingly. Ros, what was on offer? Did, did Boris take, take anything? The Ukrainians are saying they need significantly more weapons. Did Boris Johnson take some of them with him? Well, what he's done, actually, is, is sort of commit to better training of Ukrainian right. troops, which is also very important. So he's a, the UK is going to train um, a certain number of Ukrainian troops over a certain period of time, and the idea is to get them comfortable. You know, it's up to 10,000 soldiers, which yeah. is not an insignificant number, um, and to get them particularly comfortable in sort of some of the newer equipment and kit that could be coming in. Yeah, the NATO kits uh, that they're now being supplied with. Uh, Ros, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Greatly appreciate it. Bloomberg's Ros Matheson. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Yesterday it was Shiphole. Today, Gatwick. European air airports are cutting capacity ahead of the summer season in order to deal with long queues and flights being cancelled at the last minute. Um, there is simply not enough ground handlers, not enough baggage handlers, not enough staff to be able to run the airports at the kind of capacity uh, that the airlines would like to see. Uh, and this is a move that I think probably will be welcomed by politicians who are concerned uh, that we are seeing the kinds of scenes uh, that we've seen at airports uh, over the last couple of short, short bank holidays, uh, and those could be extrapolated into the summer. Joining us now to discuss the, the chaos that we're seeing uh, is Bloomberg Sid Arthur Phillip from our travel team. Sid, 
why is this happening? Let's just start there. Why is Gatwick Shipol unable to hire the staff that they need? So, Guy, at the, at the height of the pandemic, uh, all these airlines, airports, uh, cut a lot of staff. And uh, there was uncertainty about if travel rem- demand would ever return. Of course, it has. And uh, the workers who used to work in these airports or these airlines are no longer working for them. And some of them are not keen on coming back. So airports and airlines, especially as inflation rises and all sorts of wages rise, uh, they're really struggling to hire enough staff back. And that's really at the heart of all these issues. How long is it going to take to fix this problem? Uh, So, I mean, it depends on who you ask. I mean, obviously, the CEO of Heathrow Airport said it could take as much as 18 months for demand to fully restore and uh, things to go back to absolutely normal. And for demand so to really recover depends. or supply to uh, sorry, recover? Su- supply, to, uh, sorry, right. supply to recover. And so essentially demand is already there. It's just the issue of supply and getting the supply and the capacity back into the system is going to take some time and it's going to come at a considerable cost to the com- companies. Who's it going to hit the hardest? You talk about the considerable cost. Who is, who's most kind of exposed here? Uh, so it's really the guys who cut a lot. I mean, so if you remember, UK carriers cut much more than... Uh, their European counterparts, the so British Airways famously cut as many as 10,000 workers at the height of the pandemic. Uh, EasyJet also cut vast amounts of workers. And so it's going to be harder for those carriers, as well as airports. And, I mean, obviously we've seen the chaos in uh, during the Jubilee weekend when we saw that UK airports didn't have enough staff. So it's really going to, it's going to encompass the whole industry, and especially smaller players like baggage handling companies and everything else, they will have to work much harder. In terms of the sustainability of the current rise in demand, what are we looking at here? I, there's been, there's clearly, I, we were talking about it with Charlie a little bit earlier on, revenge travel. Everybody's been locked up for two years. They want to go on holiday. Everybody wants to get away. Everybody wants to do it this summer. But what happens in, in the autumn? What happens in the winter? What happens next summer? These, these, these airports, these airlines are trying to bring, bring everybody back super quickly. But actually... Will the demand be there in a year's time? That's really the many billion dollar question, guys, because the airline CEOs are sort of, they are being cautious about future demand because there simply isn't enough visibility on what the outlook looks like post-summer. So summer demand is very, very strong. Everybody knows it. But post-summer, people are still sort of looking to see the signs of whether that will sustain and whether the demand will continue to keep the industry afloat until summer 23. So what are, what are they doing? Is the, they talk about the fact that they're trying to hire as quickly as they can. Is that the, is that the reality of it? Or, or is some of this shortage that we're seeing at the moment deliberate? Uh, I, think it, it, I think it's more just a lack of staff, more than a deliberate attempt to really... Uh, because remember, summer is the busiest time for the airline industry, and if they can't make money now, then yeah. it's going to be a really hard slog until next summer. So for the airline industry, it's vital to get operations ramped up and get as many flights as possible uh, this summer so that they can get that cash, especially as their balance sheets are pretty strained from two years of COVID. So I think it's less intentional and more sort of just the fundamentals of the market. The other factor that we're having to deal with at the moment is jet fuel prices that are going through the roof. Now, European carriers largely hedge against it, but that's not a complete safety net um, that, that is going to be protecting them. Are we going to also end up with not only travel chaos, but also fuel surcharges and things like that being applied? 
So we've seen sporadic reports of fuel surcharges being introduced in other regions, and we might see it return in in Europe especially as sort of fuel prices rise. I mean, I think the volatility is really the concern here because it's sort of it's spiking around and moving around, and that's what fuel hedges really help insulate against. And we've seen the likes of Wizz Air, which uh, eschewed uh, fuel hedging at the height of the pandemic, return to the fuel hedging market and saying that we're going to start hedging fuel going forward. So I think everyone's looking to certainty in cost, especially as we enter this high phase of high inflation, high cost of living, and airlines really want to have some sort of control and visibility on their cost going forward. You and I are going to Doha tomorrow. We're going to the IATA conference, which is the kind of the industry conference. Is this an industry that is back? Is this an industry that is confident? Or is this an industry that is that is really struggling for a sense of direction right now? It's got to deal with the short-term crisis, a medium-term crisis potentially of demand, inflation, uh, and then you've got the, the whole sort of sustainability story, which I, I've yet to hear anybody kind of giving me a clear and honest answer about whether or not the airline industry can deliver on net zero. I think it's really a, the reality is it's a mix of all of those scenarios because while the airline industry has put up this bullish face as they get into the IATA summit about how the demand recovery is here and the airline industry is back, to be fair, it's, it's been unequal in many regions. I mean, we saw at the height of the pandemic, demand in China for domestic travel was very, very high while the rest of the world languished. And we've seen demand soaring back in the U.S., in Europe, Latin America, as travel curbs are lifted. But we've also seen some sort of demand erosion in China as they went into lockdown. So I think it's, just, it's too early to say that the airline industry is back and everything's going to be hunky-dory. And I think we'll have to wait and watch, really, and see how it plays out over the next quarter or two to really get a fix on what's going on. We'll probably know a lot more by Tuesday next week. Uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting few days for you and me, I think, uh, in, in listening to some of what these airline CEOs have to say. Sid, I'll see you tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Siddharth Phillip joining us from our travel team. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Let me give you a quick update on where we sit with the markets right now. Um, U.S. markets, equity markets beginning to regain a little bit of traction. So the Nasdaq is up by 1.2. The S&P uh, up by just one tenth of 1%. But it is positive. Both are down. Let's call them a circa 5% on the week. The S&P is actually down by 5.91% week to date. The FTSE 100 closing in negative territory today, down by four-tenths of 1%. Oil prices have been a huge story today. Basically, you had central banks, the Fed in particular, once again banging the drum about the fact that they are going to hit inflation hard. The Fed chair talking at a conference a little bit earlier on about what's happening well, what the future lies, um, what what the future looks like for the dollar, talking about the fact that he's aiming to get inflation back down to target, i.e. 2%. Uh, we'll talk more about all of that in just a moment. John Authors is going to be joining us. But let's get an update now on what is happening with the headlines. Here's Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on on this Friday. Cuts in natural gas supplies from Russia are forcing European utilities to tap reserves normally used during the peak winter season. In one of the latest signs of how the region 
nation's energy crisis is escalating. Storage levels fell this week for the first time since mid-April when traders typically start to top up facilities. That according to data from Gas Infrastructure Europe. And that is helping drive gas futures toward their biggest weekly gain since the Kremlin began its war on Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin says Russia is weathering unprecedented sanctions imposed by the U.S. and its allies over the invasion of Ukraine, insisting that the consequences for the West will be worse. Putin told the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum authorities are stabilizing the economy step by step and the West's economic blitzkrieg against Russia has no chance of success. Norton Motorcycles plans to develop and build an electric motorbike in the UK that it claims will have racing performance, touring range, and lightweight handling. As part of a 30-month project co-funded by a government program, the iconic British motorcycle maker, now owned by India's TVS Motor, will work with six UK partners, including Delta Cusworth and High Speed Limited, to develop the project. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, have a great weekend, Guy Johnson. Back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, you too. Enjoy the long weekend. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. It's interesting what he says about Norton, actually. The, the big thing about bikes is, uh, and people have often debated this, do you want to actually have drive in both wheels? Because that would improve stability, particularly when maybe you lose traction on the back wheel. Could improve safety. Um, so it would be interesting to see ultimately whether or not electric bikes go for that kind of dual dual power option. Uh, I digress. Let's talk about the markets. Let's talk about what is going on here. Um, so we've seen a little bit of volatility this afternoon in markets. One of the reasons for this, a couple of comments coming through from the Federal Reserve. Um, the, the Fed's uh, sending its uh, sem- semi-annual monetary report to Congress a little earlier. The headline coming out of that, the commitment by the Fed to restore price stability. The Fed's saying that is unconditional. Now, as I said, a little bit earlier on, you had Jay Powell speaking at the inaugural event on the international role of the dollar, um, saying basically that the Fed is acutely, acutely focused on returning inflation to 2%. Now, the market has been assuming for quite some time that the Fed would probably tolerate inflation, let's call it circa 3%. It would tolerate inflation around 3%, which is above target, in order not to have to hit demand quite as hard and cause a significant recession. But if the Fed is targeting 2%, that is a much more hardcore, hard look, hard sort of attack on inflation than maybe the market has been anticipating. So you've seen that being reflected today in bonds. The the Bank of England was out this week with its policy decision, taking a slightly softer, more measured approach to to its desire to, to sort of beat down inflation. Now, every central bank is having to deal with this slightly differently. But the, the Bank of England is pointing to 11% inflation in the UK, and it is miles away from that in terms of rates. We saw rates being raised this week to 1.25%. There is an expectation maybe that we go 25 or 50 at the next rate setting meeting. The market is now pricing in 50, 50, 50 from the Bank of England, but whether or not that ultimately gets delivered upon remains to be seen. Whole range of factors coming into the mix in order for, for that to come to, uh, to come to pass. I think you'd have to see uh, wage growth being much stickier uh, and, and maybe the possibility of the kind of 1970s style sort of second round effects becoming much more embedded. Now, earlier on, my good friend and colleagues, uh, Anna Edwards and Francine Lacroix, actually had the opportunity to catch up uh, with Hugh Peel. He is the chief economist over at the Bank of England. This is what he had to say on that subject. In the sense of the outcome of our forecast, yes, we have underestimated inflation. But if we do see greater evidence that 
the current high level of inflation is becoming embedded mm. in pricing behaviour by firms, in wage setting behaviour by firms and, and workers, then you know, that will be the trigger. I think we've made a set of decisions. We started earlier than some other central banks. Cumulatively, cumulatively since we started, we've done as much with bank rate as other central banks have done perhaps more quickly in recent times. Chief Economist of the Bank of England talking to Francie Lacroix and Anna Edwards a little bit earlier on. Let's talk now to John Authors um, of Bloomberg Opinion. John, th- there's been some turbulence this afternoon or this morning from your point of view in financial markets. Yeah, We've had yes. Jay Powell coming out ahead of a long weekend, talking at this inaugural meeting uh, on the, the dollar's role in international markets, talking about the fact that he wants to see inflation in the United States come back down to targets to 2%, and he is going to make sure that happens. We've also had other commentary suggesting that the Fed's commitment to restoring price stability is unconditional. I've talked to a lot of people recently, and one of the things that I've come away from those conversations has been that a lot of people think that the Fed is going to blink, that it's not going to push inflation down to 2%. It'll tolerate inflation at, say, circa 3% in order to avoid a really vicious recession. If the Fed's not going to do that, how do we need to rethink things? Okay, uh, if you do get the, uh, the kind of aggressive cut, uh, kind of aggressive moves he's getting to, to uh, talking about to deal with inflation, then basically stagflation becomes much less likely, uh, a recession becomes more likely, which means that. Bond yields have a lot further to go and will then become a great buy. Uh, and it, but it, in terms of asset prices, it's very hard to deal with in terms of timing, um, which is why you're seeing a lot of people not knowing exactly which way, which way to move. Um, I, I, I think in, in the long run, from the point of view of what the Fed is required to worry about, the approach he's taking is probably the correct one. The worry has to be uh, concerning credibility, which is what plenty yep. of people have been talking about. How seriously can we take him, given that he was the inverse Volcker less than two years ago at Jackson Hole 2020, saying now we want inflation to go up and succeeded beyond his wildest dreams very, very swiftly and is now now trying to say, yes, it's not. we're not talking about average of... Two percent. We're talking about two percent, and it yeah. has to get there. That's how, how, how a very high, difficult one to square. How high yeah. do you think rates would have to go to get inflation to two percent? Um, <laughs> but is it is, is it is okay. it more than the four percent that the market is yes. now thinking about? I'm sure it's more than four percent to get to get inflation down reliably to two percent, given the amount of. The, the, the problem we have, this is a reason to, to believe that there needn't be that bad. But it's also a reason to be very difficult to get inflation and so much money in people's pockets. Uh, so you really do need to make money much more expensive uh, yeah. if you're going to bring inflation down. There, there are so many people with such a big incentive, such an ease in, uh, in spending more money to buy things. So uh, I, I mean, I know people who talk about seven or eight percent. I think at that point, it really does begin to, to be like, um, you know, licking your finger and putting it in the in the air. Yeah, um, sure. One rule of thumb that I do find reasonable is that it's difficult 
to beat an inflationary wave unless you get to a point where, at some point, rates are higher than the rate of inflation. So that might that might mean that they steadily get to 4% just as inflation is coming down to 4 Or it could conceivably mean, if they're very unlucky, things break badly in terms of COVID and um, COVID and, and the oil price, uh, it could conceivably mean that they have to go further. There's massive imponderables in every direction, of course. Um, John, it's been, but, it's been an incredibly it's, turbulent week. Uh, yes. What what have we? Uh, you're going into a long weekend. It's got the Juneteenth holiday yeah. coming up on Monday. Everybody's going to be kind of sitting back, ruminating on a week that has been that has mm. that has felt like a game changer in some ways. Has it been? Yes. I think you have to say it has, um, simply because so many central banks, with the sole significant exception of the Bank of Japan, moved course. Had to admit that things were different from what they had thought changed their behavior even hugh pill there you know admitting yep. to some extent that the that, that, that the uh that the bank of england had had underestimated the problem earlier and was was tightening and then obviously swiss national bank european central bank with its emergency meeting and what now appears to be quite a real attempt at uh at uh, closing spreads and the fact yep. that it's very very i uh, other than at the worst of 2008, I can't think of anything like this. But, but this amount of um, central banking to move in in, uh, in such different directions. And the, the key thing, um, I have been doing this a long time. I have yep. never seen before a, a central bank meeting under pressure to hike. I've seen plenty of meetings where they were under pressure to cut. This is very different for... Anybody much under the age, nobody much under the age of sixty has seen anything like this the, the, it, to trade in the markets, and yeah. that makes people much more nervous. And I, I know. Uh, uncertainty. Sorry, carry I, I know you're not that old, so uh, I think we're all we're all kind <laughs> of it. We're all in the same camp here. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's. You, you bring up the ECB, so let's just talk about that for a moment. Yes. The ECB yes. seems like it's in a really weird place at the moment. It it. Mm is having to come up with a tool to close spreads at the same time it's under significant pressure to raise interest rates. Yes. The capital key, which which is applied for a long time, the idea being that, that if it's going to buy bonds, it buys them in in a structured way that fits the relative footprint of the various countries within 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 the eurozone i.e. germany's very big kind of big capital key malta very yeah. small small capital key kind of just just to give you an idea yeah. of the spread the spread there yeah. that looks like it's now going to be thrown out of the window and you do wonder whether or not a that is going to pass muster in germany and places like the netherlands and b whether or not the quid pro quo for that removal of the capital key which would allow the ecb effectively to go to sell bonds german bonds and buy italian bonds mm. btps will be that ultimately it has to have higher interest rates in order to satisfy the hawks that i think is the key calculation here um i am used to being very negative i think there is a faint chance that this is actually going to work again because this is very unusual this isn't like 10 years ago when um uh, caving to make life easier for Italy and Spain involved um, the ECB being uh, easy. This time it's about uh, uh, being nice to Italy and Spain so that the ECB can be tough. 
which is an easier political sell in Germany. Not easy, but easier than it was yeah. 10 years ago. I have no grasp or not sufficient enough grasp of the constitutionality. If it's structured in the way that we're talking, that, that they've been talking about now, which reminds me almost of the exchange rate mechanism that George yep. Soros attacked all those years ago, where there's a band, and if the band gets too wide, there's an effective, uh, what would it be? And this is a band that's going to be applied on, to spreads here rather than, rather yes, than the exactly. currency. So, yep. so there's an effective put option on, on BTPs and a call option on um, on on bunts. That, that might just be something that the uh, ECB can do without saying it or without getting without needing to get it passed by all the politicians. Right. Uh, or at least it might be something they can start there within their rights to start and then get clearance to do it. Or it could be going back to this is right at the beginning of my uh, career, shadowing the Deutschmark era when Nigel Lawson, the British Chancellor, was trying to pin the, the pounds to the Deutschmark, but didn't tell Margaret Thatcher that was what he was doing. Um, but everybody in the markets could tell that he was intervening to try to, to uh, shadow the Deutschmark. It's and that ended possible that you could get something like that, although that's hard to do in this day and age. That ended brilliantly. Um, John, have a great long weekend. Really appreciate the time as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's John Authors. Uh, up next, we'll take you back to the energy story. We're going to take you to the White House next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So oil prices have dropped sharply today. Good news for the White House over in Washington, D.C., which has been seriously concerned about the cost of filling up vehicles in the United States. Five bucks a gallon, potentially heading towards six. The White House has, as a result, put over the last few days uh, uh, forth a list of proposals to attack this issue. Heather Boucher uh, with the U.S. Council of Economic Advisers talking about the proposals a little bit earlier on to the surveillance team here on Bloomberg Television. As the president made clear um, over the course of this week, all options are on the table in terms of energy. Um, you know, he sent a letter this week to oil refiners to say, hey, you all need to do your part. And that was part of showing just how important this issue of inflation and gas prices is to the president. He understands that this affects the pocketbooks of American families all over the country and is doing what he can to make sure that the prices that people pay at the pump are fair, um, even given, you know, the fact that we are in the midst of this uh, unprovoked war by Putin in the Ukraine that has upended oil markets, leading to shorter supplies and um, increases in prices. But one of the things we also know is that refiners are, um, you know, th there's a gap now, a growing gap between how much they are paying for the oil that they bring in and how much they are charging at the other end. That gap used to be about 50 cents. It's now over a dollar. And so that is one of the things that the president is focused on this week. And then, as he said in the letter to them, he is willing to use all of his powers um, that he has available to him uh, to take next steps. But he wants to talk to them first, figure out what they can do together. Heather, let's flesh some of this out and give me some time to do so if you can. I'll go through it. This is what the president said. Exxon made more money than God this year, buying back their stock and making no new investments. A quote from the president. This is what Exxon said. Globally, we've invested double what we've earned over the past five years, $118 billion, on new oil and gas supplies compared to net income of 55. This is what the president said. At a time of 
war, historically high refinery profit margins being passed directly onto American families are not acceptable. He's alluding to them deliberately holding back capacity, alluding to price gouging. You've done the same. Your own Energy Information Administration has reported only recently that the industry was working at incredible levels of capacity utilization of over 94%. Your own Treasury Secretary has said it's not price gouging, it's demand and supply that's largely driving inflation. So, Heather, my question to you, and thank you for allowing me to flesh that out, is who's giving the President these talking points because they do not add up? Well, here's the thing. One of the things that we have seen, again, in large part due to both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine that Putin has been waging, is been um, there's been capacity at refineries globally has been taken offline. So over the course of um, the pandemic, um, here in the United States, about 800,000 uh, barrels per day were taken offline. And so the president is saying, hey, can we work together to figure out how to get that back online as quickly as possible? Heather, Let's I hear you. But the capacity. president's not just doing that. He's suggesting something nefarious is going on here at the same time. He, he that's, that's the politics of it. I hear it. He's alluding to price gouging. He's saying they made more money than God. They're buying back their own stock. They're making no new investments. Yes, they are buying back their stock. Yes, they are also making investments as well. As I said earlier, your own Treasury Secretary says this is supply and demand. We're having a policy conversation. The president isn't. He's speaking just about politics. He's trying to make that out is, now, something now, nefarious is, not, is happening down in Texas. That is not true. I've that just read out all true. the quotes, direct <laughs> quotes. Which bit of it isn't true? It is not true. The, the president is having a policy conversation. He is looking at the data and the evidence in front of him about what is happening in this industry. And what you cannot deny is that the last time that uh, oil barrels were priced at 100, 120 barrels, um, $120 per barrel, um, gas prices at the pump were about 425. Now, at this same price level, of course, it fluctuates every day, but now at this price level, you're seeing prices at the pump at of over $5. There, there is a gap there, and this is what the president is focused on. That doesn't, you know, obliterate anything that, that has happened in between. And yes, certainly investments have been made, but the president is saying, what more can we do? Yeah. Because we need to get um, this oil supply to consumers at this moment. You know, people can't very quickly change their demand for gas. Um, people well, need, you know, drive their cars to get to work. So he is focused on what else the refiners can do. And there is evidence that, that they are bringing in you know, exceptionally high profits and that there is this gap between the prices that they are paying and the prices that they are charging that is larger than before. So that Heather, is all evidence, and that is still about supply and demand. Well, but Heather, yeah. let's say you cannot get that supply on in the way that the president would like in the short term. How worried are you about essentially going against what the Fed is trying to do with dampening demand by things like rebate cards or subsidizing the prices of gas and other goods at a time when the Fed ultimately is trying to get demand to come down? So that is such a great question. You've elevated how this particular economic moment is very tricky because we have so many supply side challenges. Um, as the as Jay Powell himself noted, you know the Fed's tools are blunt and they are um, essentially on the demand side. But we have these, and we've seen them over the past few years. These incredible supply chain um, snarls. We're seeing these challenges in large part because of the pandemic, and so that is why the president has well, had a multi-pronged approach to figure out all of the different ways we can attack Heather, we, where prices are too high we don't for consumers. Have, we don't have a lot of time left, but just quickly, the point is that it's very hard to deal with the supply chain 
and disruptions, and it takes time. So without that uh, really getting remedied in the short term, why is it good not to just see demand come down a little bit? Well, certainly that, the, the president is letting the Fed do their job. But, you know, so yesterday the president signed new legislation on ocean shipping. Here's a place where that legislation and the work that the Federal Maritime Commission is doing right now could have an impact on prices that consumers pay for goods that are being shipped from overseas. So the president is doing everything he can to lower prices using all the tools at his disposal and trying to work with Congress to do so. U.S. Council of Economic Advisers member Heather Boucher speaking from the White House to Bloomberg Radio a little earlier on. That just about wraps up the show. It is Friday. I'm sure you're all eager to get into the weekend. The United States enjoying a long weekend. It is the Juneteenth, the inaugural Juneteenth holiday being enjoyed over in the United States. Next week is a busy one. Um, A lot of things coming up. One of the things I want to flag to you is Wednesday, Thursday, Jay Powell, the chair of the the Federal Reserve, uh, giving testimony to Congress. Uh, We'll take those uh, hearings for you live. Uh, Retail sales next week from the UK. It's Amazon Prime Day uh, next week as well. Uh, So a really, really busy week coming up but it's a long weekend in the united states a shortened week next week i suspect it could be a bumpy one significantly the first day of summer this is bloomberg